you're about to hear a true story of someone who has taken life's lemons and made lemonade. I am Heidi, your host, and thank you for joining me. Charlene, welcome to Heidi's Lemonade Stand. I'm looking forward to getting to know you and hearing your story. So start out by telling me just a couple of things about yourself. Um, well, my name is Charlene Madden. I live in uh, beautiful British Columbia, Canada. I am right in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So I'm in my own little piece of paradise. I, um, I live on a six acre hobby farm. So I get to spend part of my day with goats and dogs. And uh, uh, the other part of my day, I get to help people um, step into the lives that they want to uh, want to live. So I'm a women's empowerment coach. I am a workshop host. And my passion and purpose in life is to share my stories and struggles in hopes of uh, inspiring other people so they know they can get through whatever it is they're going through. Same. I love this so much. That's why I'm excited to talk to you because I want to know why you're doing what you do. Like there's a reason why you are trying to help people. So take me back and tell me about your lemon and your lemonade. Yeah, my lemon starts a long time ago. It feels like um, my life and my story really starts when I was three and a half. Um, my parents got divorced, as many parents have. Um, but my dad was a really severe alcoholic and he tended to be violent when he drank and his violence was usually directed at my half brothers because of course they weren't biologically his, so they were an easy target. And, um, my mom had to make a decision that she had to take us and leave to try to create a better life. And when she tried to leave, um, my dad wouldn't let her take my sister and I, because we were biologically his, and um, she had to make a tough decision. Does she stay and risk the lives of two of her children? Because I think she knew eventually my dad would probably kill one of my brothers in a drunken rage. Or did she take the two that she could save and go? And she made that decision and she left with my two brothers. And with my dad being such a severe alcoholic, he was not able to look after two little girls. Again, I was three and a half. My sister was just over seven. And he contacted my grandparents and these were my maternal grandparents. So my mom's parents and asked if they would be willing to take us in. And my grandmother did not skip a beat. She said, absolutely. We will take them. And uh, my grandmother to me was uh, as close to a saint as you could probably get. Of course, she was uh, an incredibly strong woman for the era that she came from. She believed that women should get a good education so that they could get a good job and they could be independent and support themselves. And I probably learned that lesson probably a little too well, but um, as wonderful as my grandmother was, my grandfather, unfortunately was a pedophile. So at the age of three and a half and seven for my sister, we started experiencing uh, sexual abuse at his hands. And this actually went on for nine years um, before it finally came out. And it was almost weekly abuse. He was definitely a predator of convenience. And my grandmother, as caring and giving as she was to everyone else, took one day a week to uh, do a little self-care. And she would go to bingo every Monday night. And it was that Monday night that he used as his opportunity to... Um, you know, come and abuse my sister and I. So when my sister was 16, she went to school one day 
And she had a nervous breakdown. Basically, she was terrified that she was going to become impregnated by my grandfather. And she wanted to desperately leave. But as much as she wanted to leave, she knew if she left that I would start to receive the full force of the abuse. And she desperately wanted to protect me. So she had stayed and she knew she couldn't do that anymore. So luckily, everything came out. So again, I'm 12 and a half and my grandfather gets arrested and we're in a smaller town, 2,500 people. And everybody in town knows uh, our family, of course, kind of splinters apart. My grandparents get divorced. We go into low income housing and um, we're I'm living with all of the stigma of being in a small town and everybody knowing that I have been molested by my grandfather for almost a decade. And back in the early 80s, which is when this all came out. Counseling and therapy was not a big thing. And um, so unfortunately, we didn't get the care that we need. And I think part of it was my grandmother's old school mentality of just put your head down, get through it, do what you need to. And so that's what we did. And I remember sitting when it all came out, sitting in an office with a social worker and having her, you know, just kind of get up and come and pat me on the back and say, I just want, you know, Charlene, everything's going to be okay. And I'm 12 and a half. And at this point in my life, I don't even have any idea what okay is supposed to look like because nothing has really felt okay. But yet I have this promise that everything's going to be okay. So I go into high school and of course I'm dealing with this trauma and this stigma and no coping mechanisms to deal with it. And very quickly on, I start um, the emotional overwhelm is kicking in and um, I start dealing with mental health issues and depression and suicidal ideologies. Um, I started cutting as an outlet of that emotional pain. I had to release it somehow. So cutting was a, a, a convenient way at the time of releasing that because it was really the only way I knew how. And then I started writing and it became a little healthier, better outlet for it. I was able to, as I said, pour ink out onto paper rather than blood because it was usually one option or the two and of course when you're writing really dark depressing stuff like I was at the time um, it catches attention and I got pulled into my guidance counselor's office and was told I had to meet with a school psychologist so I spent an afternoon of doing questionnaires and talking and all the things I didn't want to do and um, at the end of that four hours, I had this psychologist look across the desk at me and say, well, Charlene, I just want you to know we're diagnosing you as manic depressive bipolar. And I'm 15 going on 16 going, I don't even know what that means. And I'm just going, okay, so now on top of everything else, I'm crazy, you know, and that's how I felt at the time. And again, it was a, if you need to talk, book an appointment, we're here for you anytime. That was the follow-up care I received. And really the last thing I wanted to do was talk about it. I just wanted to pretend that this had never happened, that I was just a normal kid because that's all I ever wanted was just to be a normal kid. And so what do I do? I just put my head down to what my grandmother taught me to do. I just kept working hard. I got through school and I moved away because that's what I thought was going to fix everything. If I could just move away from where everything happened, where everyone knew me, I could just go be a face in the crowd. And so I moved away with my high school sweetheart and um, we decided early on we were going to start having a family. And I think for me, family was a way to heal. I thought that 
having children was going to give me the opportunity to be the mom that I had never had. And then I could have that picture perfect white picket fence family. And the only problem was I wasn't capable of even embracing that or creating that because of the trauma I had experienced. So uh, I had my first daughter when I was 21, my second daughter when I was 25, and my son when I was 27. And each child I thought would fill that hole inside of me, but of course it didn't. And it actually just created a bigger and bigger hole because I realized I didn't have the capabilities to be the type of mom that I wanted to be. And it just created more and more shame for me. And when I was 28, I had gotten to a point where the darkness was so bad that I was so depressed that I was again, suicidal and contemplating planning out how I could take my life, knowing that it would probably be my kids that would find me when they came home from school. And that terrified me. So I sat my husband down and I said, um, I need to leave the house. I need to try to get myself together. I'm not fit to look after myself, let alone three little kids. And I think at this point, our marriage had deteriorated to the point that he was quite fine with that fact. And um, so I left and thought, okay, now's my chance to get it together. But really all this did was sent me into a tailspin where I was having this even worse guilt that now I had just left my kids like my parents had done to me. And it sent me on a spiral of heavy drinking, um, you know, smoking marijuana all the time and just desiring for a different life, but not knowing how to get there. And I'd only been separated for about a month from my husband when I jumped into another relationship. And I think it was my need for someone to want me to love me. I was still having that little girl inside of me just want someone to want me. And I was willing to take anything at that point. And um, I jumped into a relationship with someone who was as toxic as I was at that time. He was an alcoholic, had just left a relationship. Um, He had suffered his own childhood trauma, so had a lot of unresolved issues. And part of that created him to be violent when he drank. So very quickly on, I started experiencing domestic violence and it really fit the narrative of what I felt I deserved. I had so much uh, anger and guilt and shame over leaving my children and not being able to be the mom that I, I so desperately wanted to be that the abuse seemed like karma. It seemed to be exactly what I deserved, the punishment that I deserved. And this went on, it was uh, two years of abuse. And I finally kind of hit a dark spot where after one bad evening, I was like, I can't live like this anymore. And I went to my medicine cabinet and I emptied out all the pills that were in it and um, took the pain pills, the pain pills, the sleeping pills, and then sat down on my couch with a pad of paper to write a goodbye letter to my children. And as hard as that was, it was the best thing I could do at the time because I'm some writing and trying to explain to my three little kids why their mom is going away forever, I realized I couldn't abandon them in this final way. I'd already done enough. I couldn't leave them like this. And so I called a cab. I went to the emergency room and uh, I was sitting at the admissions desk explaining how I had taken all of these pills and I collapsed. And when I woke up, I'm laying in a bed with tubes down my throat and my partner is sitting next to me in the chair crying about how sorry he was. 
I get released from the hospital the next day and I get a phone call from my mom who I had been in, in contact with. And, um, my partner had contacted her to let her know I'd been in the hospital and what had happened. And she said, you know, Charlene, I think you need to move across the country. I think you need to pack the kids up, come out here. We'll help you get on your feet. You can make a fresh start. And I went, what a great idea. <laughs> you know, like this just fits my pattern of, of running and thinking that if I change locations, everything will be better. Not understanding that wherever I went, there I was, I was taking the problem with me. And so I did that. I packed my kids up, moved across the country and um, tried to make a fresh start. And six months after I had moved, my partner that I had been with in Ontario decided he was going to move out as well uh, with the promises that, you know, he loved me and, and how much he missed me and me going away made him realize how much he wanted to be with me and how everything would be different. And of course, that never happens. You know, those are just words. And um, he moved out. And this continued another 10 years of absolute dysfunction and chaos. Alcoholism on both of our parts, uh, drug addiction on his part, which, you know, I wasn't aware of when we got together, uh, adultery on his part. And of course, I had no self-worth. So everything just seemed to fit what I thought I deserved. And I don't know how long this would have continued to go on in my life had he not came home one July 1st, it was Canada Day up here and said, I'm moving out today. I'm moving in with someone else. And I was absolutely destroyed. I thought everything I have gone through, everything that you have put me through, and now you're just kicking me aside. And I was devastated and he moved out. And um, I luckily had a really great support group around me who said, come on, it's time, you know, you can, this will be great. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'm, this is it. This is my opportunity to finally get my life together. I keep thinking I'm going to have that opportunity come up. And I was doing really well for about two and a half months. I was, you know, faking my way, you know, to everybody about how great my life was, how happy I was when inside I wasn't. And I had finished a, a bartending shift. That's what I was doing at the time. And I was sitting at my bar after work, having a drink with customers and in walked a police officer. And he asked if he could see me outside. And of course he knew where to find me because he had been involved in one of our domestic disputes prior. And um, he took me outside and said, Charlene, I just came on shift and I received a notice and I wanted to let you know um, your ex-partner has committed suicide. And in that moment, I just could find kind of feel my world collapsing in on me. Um, I think a really sick part of me had held on hope that I would be enough for him to get it together and he would want to come back to me. Um, but of course, now that was gone. It was the ultimate abandonment I had felt at the time. And I, again, just did what my grandma told me, put my head down, continue working. I threw myself into work. Um, I kind of emotionally abandoned my kids during this point. This was a man who had raised them for 13 and a half years. And I was so deep in my own pain and grief and dysfunction that I wasn't even aware of what they were emotionally experiencing. And that's probably one of the hardest things I deal with, with now. And about two weeks after his death, I was sitting with a good friend talking and I told her how mad I was. And she said, well, of course, anger is one of the stages of grief. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm not mad that he took his life. 
I understand why he took his life. I'm mad he did it first. Because by him doing it first, I'm left behind to see all the pieces that people have to pick up. I'm left to see the grief and the heartache and the pain and suffering from everyone. And I so desperately wanted to end my life. How do I do it when I've seen that? And so I just kept throwing myself into life. And each day it felt like just, you know, I was losing a minute of daylight. The darkness just kept creeping in more and more. I reached a point where I started uh, going to see a psychiatrist. I had had a, an episode where I was sitting on my bathroom floor with a gun cabinet key in one hand and pills in the other hand, trying to contemplate which would be the best way to end my life. And then picking up, instead of doing that, knowing my son was you know downstairs sleeping in his bedroom, um, picking up a knife and cutting myself. And as I sat there watching the blood pool around me, going this this is it this is my last chance to get help or not because i'm on teetering on the edge and so i went and got help and um, i had actually received a life insurance policy for my ex-partners ending his life and had been thinking about you know purchasing a house and that maybe this could be something i could leave behind for my children and i remember going into my my third and final appointment with my psychiatrist and and uh you know, my personality is, and probably from my grandmother, that work ethic of just tell me what to do and I will do it. Right. Like she kept wanting to, let's talk about the past. And I was like, I don't want to talk about the past. I know why I'm messed up. I know why I am the way I am. I just need to know how to fix it. Please just tell me how to fix it. And, you know, I remember looking at her saying, can you just tell me what you did to deal with your mental health struggles? And I remember her eyes kind of glazing over and going, well, Charlene, I've never experienced mental health struggles. And I was like, then how for the last three appointments have you sat there and said, you know how I feel? Because if you've never experienced it, if you've never sat a day in the dark, you don't know what that feels like. No, no, no amount of workbooks or textbooks you read can really truly express what it feels like. And I think I felt that in that moment, I can't even get help when I want to get help. Like it was as if it was my sign that that's it. That was your last chance. There's no help for you. And so I left that appointment and I set a date just over a month um, from that date. I was going to end my life. I was moving into my house at the end of September and I was setting a date after a month after that to end my life. I was going to go and shoot myself like my ex-partner had did. And I just needed 30 days to get everything organized for my son so that I left everything in the best way I could. So it would make everything easier on everyone else. And two weeks, I'm just kind of watching the days tick by, just, you know, trying to pretend that everything's okay. And two weeks before that date, um, a girl I worked with, a coworker, come up and said, hey, there's this women's workshop in the next town over. And she's like, do you want to come with me? And I was like, yeah, no. I was like, that's the last thing I want to go do right now. I don't need to go sit in a room and have to pretend for two whole days. And she goes, please, I really want to go, but I don't want to go alone. And I was kind of like, oh, man, that's my kryptonite right there, right? Always putting everybody else's wants and needs above my own. And here I was thinking, yeah, let's go, because she really needs to go. This girl needs some, some self-confidence. And I'm projecting everything probably from me onto her. 
And I was like, okay, fine, I'll go. So this workshop was the Saturday and Sunday before the Monday that I had set to end my life. And I pulled up to that workshop that Saturday morning, and I had my hunting rifle in the backseat of my SUV. And I walked into that room and immediately felt sick to my stomach because I felt like a spotlight had shone on me about how um, how much of uh, an imposter I was in that moment. I'm looking at this room and in my eyes, I'm seeing women that have it all together well-dressed, all excited, laughing. And here I am just being a phony. And I felt like everyone could see that in that moment. And of course they couldn't, but it felt like it. And I went and took my seat and I got through the first half of the day and it was people talking about um, diet and exercise and financial well-being. And to me, none of that mattered. And um, so then we come after lunch to the afternoon session and a woman takes the stage who is bald and she starts talking about living a life with alopecia, how she's lost all of her hair and how it happened as an early child. So she dealt with the pain, the struggles, the shame, the lack of self-worth and self-esteem that she had felt through her, her early first part of her life. And that, she had no self-love because she felt her worth was determined by her hair because that's what society had told her. And it was in that moment when she, she learned that she could love herself and not worry about what everybody else thought or, you know, felt about how she looked. If she just truly loved herself, that would be enough. And it was in that moment that she found that self-love that her whole life started to change. And I'm sitting there at the end of her talk and I'm, hearing this little voice in the back of my head that goes, well, what about you? And I thought, yeah, what about me? Like what, what would my life had looked like had I learned to love myself? Had I not needed that validation from other people to say that I was worthy? What if I had been enough for me? And of course I brushed that off because my decision had already been made. And uh, the next speaker gets on stage and it's a woman who starts talking about living with two decades of mental health struggles and how she had fought for years to push the darkness away, to keep it at bay, never, you know, fighting it constantly. And how it was in one moment when she decided that she could love that part of her as well, that she could, instead of pushing the darkness away, she could pull the darkness in so the light could get into it. And how when she embraced her mental health struggles as being part of herself, her entire life changed. And again, I'm sitting in that seat going, yeah, what about you? And I'm thinking, yeah, like that's one of my hardest struggles. My entire life has been my mental health. What if I could learn to live with it instead of trying to fight against it? What if I could have pulled it in and embraced it and loved it as being part of me? And again, I just brushed it off. And then the last speaker of the day got up and it was a gentleman who talked about um, losing his marriage, uh, losing custody of his kids, being an alcoholic, being addicted to pain medication and how he had struggled with mental health issues and had spent a year trying to find a perfect mix of alcohol and pain medication so that he could overdose but make it look like an accident because he sold life insurance and he knew what he had to do. And 
on one very rare occasion, his wife contacted him and asked him if he could take overnight visitation with the kids. And of course he jumped at that opportunity, but it was on that night that he had his kids that he found that perfect mix of drugs and alcohol. And as he was laying on his couch, knowing that he was overdosing, feeling himself slowly slip away, he was thinking of his kids in the bedroom next door to him. And he's laying there and he heard a voice that said, no, not like this, not today, there's more. And he managed to get to his cell phone. He called 911 and was able to get to the hospital. And that set him on a course of his changing his life completely. He got clean and sober. He got into counseling and therapy. And his whole life changed for the better. And now he was going around sharing his story in hopes of reaching one person who needed to hear his message. Now he got off the stage and I was sitting in that seat going, what is going on right now? Like I'm almost looking around for a hidden camera, but knowing that no one knows what I'm going through thinking, what are the chances that number one, I'm at an event that I didn't want to come to. And I have just heard three speakers talk on the areas of my life that I needed the most help in because I had struggled the most in like what this cannot be an accident that I'm sitting in this seat right now. And it was like a, you know, a light switch moment. And, you know, when I say that people are like, Oh, not really. It felt like a light switch moment. And I went, wait a minute. I don't want to die. I want to live. Like I realized in that moment that there was more, my desire to always want to help other people um, because no one had, had helped me as a child. My desire to, to be a voice of inspiration for other people and to share stories and struggles that all of those experiences had brought me to that point where I had found in that moment, my purpose. And that was, Hey, I've got stories and struggles too, that maybe if I share them and let other people know they're not alone, could you know, could help them just like these people have helped me. So I went up to the woman who hosted the event at the end of the day. And I said, I would really love to sit down with you and just share what this event has meant to me because I felt a burning desire for her to know that she had saved my life by hosting this event. And at the end of that conversation, I said, you know, I would love to um, be able to come back next year and share my story at your event. And she was like, absolutely. And I kind of left going, wow, like we're actually making plans for the future, right? This isn't just for show. We're making plans. And so I went back that next year and I spoke at her workshop and before I got off the stage, I remember saying that my reasons for being there and for sharing my story is that I can reach just one person, one person who needs to hear my message. And if I could save just one life, then everything I have experienced has been worth it. And I got off the stage and I remember I was making a beeline for the door because I was, my nerves were so up there that um, I had a woman kind of stop me and she'd been in the audience and she said, do you know how you said you wanted to save a life? And I was like, yeah. And she said, I just want you to know today you did. And she turned and walked away. And I, you know, again, got really still and I get goosebumps every time I tell that story. And I remember standing there and in the quiet, I heard that little voice that I always hear in the back of my head that says, now let's go find one more. So for me, every day that I get the opportunity to speak, it's the opportunity to find that one more, that one more person who needs to know you're not alone and that there is hope. You can get through that. Just hold on. You know, you will find that message that you're supposed to hear. And I hope that, you know, someone 
here's that message today. And, uh, and they know that they can, you know, you can choose life. So hold on. That is my theme song. I love that so much, but I have to know what happened to your kids. How are your kids? <laughs> That's all I kept thinking the whole time is these mm. babies. And my I mean, kids? I'm glad that you have come to a better place. That's beautiful. It's amazing. It's a miracle. Yeah. My kids are, um, my son lives about a half an hour away from me. So he works full time. He's doing well. Um, my middle daughter is actually attending university in Calgary and she's hoping to go into um, social work and some kind of counseling. And um, my oldest daughter is actually a, a licensed practical nurse and she works in an actual psychiatric facility. So they are all doing extremely, extremely well, given the, the circumstances, I would say. So, you know, and I mean, and my two daughters struggle with mental health issues as well. Um, so it's um, being able to come at it from a different perspective of me experiencing it has been, I think, extremely helpful. Number one, I, I could see the flags when when my daughter, my oldest daughter was younger. So and um, I think that that helped a lot being able to get her the care that she needed. So, yes, I think that's great when we can look at our own lives and be able to help our kids by what we've been through as well, even though we kind of put them through it. Mm. You, know, you you can now look and, and see the warning signs and you can help your kids. And now, you know, the tools and the things that you need to do so you can help them. Exactly. Exactly. So how long ago was this? How long have you been speaking? Um, that workshop was in 2016. Okay. So, um, so I went back in 2017 and it's, you know, it's kind of funny because when I left that workshop, I, I joke and I say that I almost heard the universe take a collective sigh as if it was like, whew, okay, finally, we've been waiting for you because it was like, after that workshop, everything started to fall into place in my life. Um, I started doing things. Number one, that took me outside of my comfort zone. That was one of the things I realized that fear um, had controlled so much of my life. So I started doing things that were uncomfortable. I published a book of poetry that were the poems that I had written when I was, you know, in darkness as a, as a teenager and as a young woman, I published that as a way of going, this is me, this is who I am and what got me there. Um, I started doing things like, um, dealing with rejection, I was like, okay, I'm going to ask someone out on a date because I need to show myself that if someone says, no, it's not going to kill me, that I, not everyone's going to love me. And, um, I asked someone out on a date and they said, yes, which kind of blew the whole thing I was trying to trying to accomplish, but we had our first date in December. And then we ended up getting married in August of the next year. It was like, when I started to love myself, the universe almost put someone in my life that could love me the way I had always wanted to be, to be loved. So things always fall in, in place in strange synchronicity ways. So I, with the women that I coach, I work on a three S um, philosophy or philosophy, and that is um, self-love, self-acceptance and self-responsibility. So number one, love yourself. Don't depend on anyone else to prove your, your worth because you are worthy. Just the fact that you were placed here in this life means you are worth it. And self-acceptance, not everything is going to be perfect. You know, we don't have to have it together all the time. If you're having a day where you don't want to get out of bed, it's okay. If you're having a week, a month, whatever it takes, 
give yourself grace to know that you're doing the best you can with the tools that you have. And then self-responsibility. So just understand that regardless of what has happened to you, you need to self get responsible for make, you know, making choices. They're going to move you in the direction. No one is coming to save you. There's no one riding in on a white horse. We have to step up and we have to go, you know what? I've gotten myself here at the point I was at. I had made those choices. Now I have to make different choices to get me in a different direction. So follow those three S's, self-love, self-acceptance, and self-responsibility. Oh, I love that you teach that. I think that's a really big problem that we have is we find ourselves in this situation and we're like thinking it's somebody else's fault and we're a victim and we want to point fingers, which is easy to do, mm -hmm. but we have to look at the choices that we made that brought us to that point Absolutely. and realize that we can make different choices to bring us to a different point. Absolutely. So I really love that you teach that. That's amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. Wow. Well, you have touched me today. So thank you for that. I just really ring true with a lot of the things you said and I appreciate you sharing to remind us to hold on and that things actually can get better. And mm -hmm. I love that you can look back and be able to teach from what you've experienced, even the terrible things mm -hmm. and be able to share your light with others. So thank you. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Well, thank you for the platform and, and for creating the ripples that you create. So, and if I can, I always like to leave with one message. And that is if you're in a spot where you feel like you're in a really dark place and you have no one to reach out to, no one to talk to, um, please know that you can find me on social media, message me on Facebook. I'm available 24 hours a day to come sit virtually with anybody who needs me to. I will hold space with you until you're ready to rise up. I just don't want anyone to feel alone like I did for all those years. So, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. <laughs> I love that. I didn't even tell you to say all that. That's awesome. I know. <laughs> no, that's great. I, I'm the same way. If anybody ever needs to reach out to me, I will hold space for anyone as mm -hmm. well. I've been to that dark place. I know how it feels to have the plans and the date set. I, I, I get you. I've, I've been there. And yeah. uh, my dad did it. My dad died by suicide as well. So I get it. And uh, I'm also available to sit with anyone as well. And so I appreciate that you let people know that because we aren't alone and the bad mm -hmm. voice in our head will tell us that we are and that we're not worthy and that we're not good enough and that the world will be better off without us. And we have to fight against that voice and hear other voices. So reach out to someone else who will tell you that that's not true, that you mm -hmm. are needed, yeah. you are valued, that we do need you to stick around and that things will change and life does get better. The light will come fight through the darkness. I appreciate that you shared that. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to speak. So yeah, yeah. Thank you. I have enjoyed spending this time with you. You might have a friend struggling with the same thing that we talked about in this episode that might enjoy listening to this too. So please share this episode because no one is alone at the lemonade stand. <laughs>